When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Battleground with me, Patrick Bishop, and Saul David. This week we'll be looking at how Ukraine sees the year ahead, with the help of some very revealing comments made in a recent interview by President Zelensky. We'll also be asking how it is that his archenemy, Vladimir Putin, has been able to ride the political troubles that have come in the wake of this war, and ask whether this is likely to change soon. On the Gaza front, we'll be looking into whether the spate of flare-ups outside the immediate battle zone are likely to lead to a wider regional conflict between Israel and Hezbollah, and trying to figure out what role Iran is playing in the war and what it hopes to achieve by its various interventions. But let's start off with that Zelensky interview. He gave it to one of his favoured Western outlets, The Economist, and his demeanour was rather different from the upbeat, optimistic persona that the president has projected since the beginning, wasn't it, Patrick? That's right, Saul. Yeah, the interview was done on a Zoom call from uh, the government situation room in Kiev, and the interviewer made a considerable point about how Zelensky's whole attitude has changed. The president is angry, they wrote. He has shed the lightness and humour of our earlier meetings with him. He punches out his message as if trying to break through the computer screen. Well, what's he angry about? Well, not the successes of his enemies, the Russians, because as far as he's concerned, there have been none, nor indeed with his own army for what's now openly acknowledged as the failure of the 2023 counteroffensive. What's really troubling him is the wobbling and hedging of his allies in the West, and also the shift of mood of his own people, some of whom seem to be accepting the situation for what it is and losing their enthusiasm for the maximalist approach he and the government have taken, defining victory as the recapture of every inch of Ukrainian territory from the enemy, including Crimea. Yeah, it was very revealing, wasn't it? But I didn't detect any lessening of his resolve. What he did do was give us a pretty good idea of how Ukraine intends to go about achieving victory in the year ahead. You get the sense that the emphasis on breakthroughs has faded and instead the war's centre of gravity will shift to Crimea and the Black Sea, and the strategy will be to hold the Russians on the eastern and southern fronts and concentrate on making the occupation of Crimea unsustainable. They'll do this by an intensification of attacks on the Black Sea fleet, which thus far have been very successful, of course. British intelligence reckons one-fifth of the fleet has been destroyed in just the last four months, but there'll also be further attempts to isolate the Russians by taking out the Kerch Bridge. 
For that, of course, he needs long-range missiles, and he's been begging the Germans to give them their own manufactured Taurus air launch cruise missiles, which they developed with Sweden. Now, these look to me very much like a French scalp and British storm shadows with the same range, but with one very significant difference. They have a special fuse which can sense the different layers the warhead passes through before it reaches the structural concrete holding the bridge up and explode. So as far as taking out the Kerch bridge, it could be very useful. Chancellor Scholz is refusing to part with them because, how many times have we heard this, he fears their use will escalate the war. It's dispiriting, isn't it, Saul? But Zelensky's a realist. He knows that the honeymoon period is long over in his relations with the West, Ukraine's relations with the West. And everyone uh, is making their own domestic calculations uh, when they consider their ongoing support for Ukraine. This, of course, is particularly true in the US, where Ukraine is going to be an issue in the November presidential election, something we've mentioned many times here. Nonetheless, there's a kind of sense of um, desperation, I think, in, in his language when he's pleading for Europe and the US to recognize the essential truth that this is their war as much as Ukraine's, and Ukraine is fighting this war on their behalf, he told the economist, giving us money or giving us weapons, you support yourself. And he goes on, if Putin succeeds in Ukraine, he will very soon afterwards be coming for them. Very uh, dramatic. Putin feels weakness like an animal because he is an animal, he said. He senses blood and he senses his strength and he will eat you for dinner with all your EU, NATO, freedom and democracy. So pretty stark stuff. He's also exasperated by what looks like uh, the growing complacency of his own people. Yes, those um, recent missile strikes we reported on a, a week or two back were a pretty brutal reminder of the dangers they still face, but some are accepting the war as the new normal as time passes, and the feeling of an existential threat seems to be fading, which means the will to go on shedding blood at the level of last year is fading. Well, we shall see. Yeah, incidentally, there's been some poll evidence that shed some light on public attitudes. A major survey done before Christmas shows that support for the armed forces remains very high, with 96% backing them. The military commander-in-chief, Valerie Zeluzhny, gets a very healthy approval rating of 88%. Now, this is interesting, of course, because he broke ranks back in November in another interview, also with The Economist, in which he revealed his assessment that the war in the East was stalemated and would remain so unless Ukraine got its hands on some new technology that would break the deadlock. That, if you remember, brought down the fury of Zelensky's office on his head. But in a way, of course, it did the president a favor because it was the army chief rather than the political leadership breaking the bad news and preparing the public for the new reality. However, it's the leadership whose popularity is taking a bit of a hit. Zelensky's approval rating is 66%, still healthy, but well down from 84% at the same point the previous year. That, of course, is probably to be expected in a long war. Slightly more alarming is another recent poll in Ukraine by the Kyiv International Institute of Sociology that found that 19% of Ukrainians would now support a surrender of some territory to Russia in return for peace. Now, this figure has almost doubled since last May. That still means there's a healthy majority in support of Zelensky's maximalist position, but that might change as the war goes on. Even so, as I said last week, uh, and certainly the British, the Americans and others agree, it would be a mistake to negotiate at the moment from a weak position. 
Yeah, and there's nothing from the Russian side that shows they're any more serious now than than they have been uh, at any point during this conflict. But let's just switch from ever to the Russian perspective. Uh, Zelensky rightly said the Russians can't be said to be winning this war. And the latest British intelligence assessment is that on current trends, they'll have lost half a million killed and wounded by the end of this current year. So the question remains, how does Putin get away with it? And will it pose him any real problems as he seeks re-election in March? I mean, one way of looking at it is that the fact is that though the underpinnings of the economy may be being eroded by the effects of sanctions, etc., this isn't actually playing through into daily life for most Russians. On the face of it, the economy is actually doing rather well. There's a figure just out saying manufacturing output is up by 7.5% compared to pre-February 2022. But of course, this may be a sort of distorted picture. It may be due to the unhealthy stimulus that the war is providing. Um, but, you know, day to day, there's no rationing, none of the things you associate with a wartime economy, no shortages of the essentials of life. Uh, getting, if you're a government job, you're still getting paid properly. Pensions are unaffected. And on the issue of casualties, if you don't live in the outlying areas where most of the all cannon fodder are, are coming from, then you're not actually feeling that much pain. Of course, in any other society, these levels of death and injury would be a huge political issue. But this is Russia, and as always, uh, the mood of the masses doesn't follow our Western European logic. It's very hard to divine. Yeah, I think we, we need to remember some of the points we were making last week, Patrick, when uh, those interviews that had been done in Russia very recently indicated uh, quite a high level of disaffection, even in areas relatively close to Moscow. There's also a clear indication that there is some economic pain. I mean, there's very high inflation at the moment. It's well into double digits. You remember the panic that produced in, in the UK when we hit those sort of numbers. That affects everyone. And as I said last week, spending of 40% of the government's budget, which is what Putin's government is now committed to on defense, will come back to bite Putin because it's not going to be spent on other things like investment in public services. And it's eventually going to lead to quite a serious overheating of the economy. So these are all troubles being stored up for the future. And another reason why the Ukrainians certainly shouldn't panic and feel pressured into committing to some kind of deal that's effectively Putin could sell as him winning, in inverted commas, the war. Now, let's move to Gaza. The temper there seems to have slackened a bit, doesn't it, Patrick? Yeah, the IDF is still launching airstrikes. There's still a high level of civilian casualties and repeated warnings from UN agencies and elsewhere of a humanitarian crisis looming. But uh, the level of violence does seem to have ebbed somewhat, and the tensions now shifting to the dangers of the conflict widening. And this, of course, is a result Events like the Israeli assassination of the senior Hezbollah commander Wissan al-Tawil, who was killed by a, a missile while being driven in his car in southern Lebanon the other day. Well, naturally, Hezbollah had vowed revenge. Both sides have been trading fire across the border for weeks now with artillery, uh, drone strikes, etc. But the, the important thing to remember here is that Hezbollah is not Hamas. It's, it's a much bigger, much better organized, much better armed organization. And they do have the means to carry out their threats. They've got huge arsenal of missiles. So 
you know, they can escalate, uh, should they, or more to the point, should Tehran, their paymasters, suppliers, and backers, who basically control them, decide to do so. And there's a real fear that, that this may actually happen. So far, uh, the Iranians have used their proxies like Hezbollah to cause trouble at the periphery of Israel and the US, like, you know, the Houthi Shia rebels in Yemen, who we were talking about last week. You know, they've been attacking shipping in the Red Sea. But if there are more incidents like the Al Tawil killing, then Tehran may judge that in order to save face, they're going to have to make good on the regular warnings of retribution that they issue after these, what they would see as Israeli provocations, like the assassination of Al Tawil. But so far, as we've been talking, they haven't followed through on them. Um, and, and it may be it gets to the point where they feel they just have to. Uh, one of the problems is that this is uncharted territory. I was talking to someone yesterday who's connected with the British intelligence community, and the thinking there is that, um, you know, for what they're seeing, Hamas actually wasn't counting on uh, the degree of success from their point of view that they had on uh, October the 7th. It may put me in mind of a phrase that was used about the Allied bombing of Dresden in 1945, no one expected it to be as as devastating as it was, and it was termed a catastrophic success, and that's a bit what British spooks feel is what happened in, in this case, that neither Hamas or Iran were prepared for it to go the way it did, that they were going to kill and capture so many people, and therefore they hadn't sort of... Um, priced in the Israeli response. Of course, they knew there was going to be Israeli response, but they didn't believe it was going to be that the damage they did to Israel would result in this absolute overwhelming operation that has followed. So they don't really have a playbook uh, to deal with the aftermath as it's played out. And of course, when you're in uncharted territory, the dangers are multiplied. And this is something that's clearly alarming the Americans very much. And that's why the U.S. Secretary of State actually blinking us, expending so much energy racing around the region, issuing these very stark warnings to everyone on all sides of the dangers of escalation. And one of the fears in Washington uh, is that uh, the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, may see widening as a way of hanging on to power. What are your thoughts about that sort? Yeah, I'm not buying that last suggestion, Patrick. Netanyahu, uh, interesting enough, possibly as a result of his own military service as a special forces operator, has always been pretty cautious about getting embroiled in conflict. And some in Israel have actually said too cautious. It's also true, of course, that he's at last chance saloon in a political sense and may do something out of character to salvage his career. But I really doubt it. And there are encouraging signs on the other side, so to speak, in Lebanon, as you say, that the killing of that senior commander, you would have thought that they would be they would be threatening all kinds of retribution. Well, they are up to a point, but actually Nasrullah, the uh, Hezbollah overall leader, has actually said or said at the time, this doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be escalation. So, you know, he could have it been hinting that it's going to be delayed and well you know we'll wait our time to to ease our dish of revenge but that also to me sounded like a, a slightly more positive sign and other little indicators that this might all not all end in disaster i mean there was a report from the israeli media 
that the latest Qatari proposal for a ceasefire agreement would include exiling Hamas leaders from the Gaza Strip. And that's something that may offer a, a possible way out, because I think we know there were other reports suggesting that Yahya Sinwar, the Hamas leader in Gaza, is holed up, surrounded by hostages. The Israelis know where he is, but they can't do anything about it because he's basically using this human shield. So to do some kind of deal that would allow him to leave with his life might be a, a possible way out. And on, in a broader sense, there was also encouraging news from the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, in the midst of this running around the Middle East, in which he said in an interview with NBC News that normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel is still possible. And we've speculated that that may have been, as it was moving towards that scenario, it may have been a reason why Hamas launched the attacks in the first place. So just one or two, you know, possibly encouraging signs. Just before we wrap up this up, we should say that today, the day we're recording, Israel is facing demands that it stop the war in Gaza in the United Nations International Court of Justice in The Hague. Now, the case has been brought by South Africa, which accuses Israel of breaching the UN's Genocide Convention, which was prompted, of course, by the atrocities of World War II and in particular the Holocaust. I think in reality, it will have no, no practical effects after all back in March 2022, the ICJ condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine and called on it to withdraw. Well, we all know what happened there, so no one's expecting anyone to take much notice of it in practical terms if the wound goes against Israel. However, it is another indication of the damage that's being done to Israel's reputation by the conduct of the war in, in Gaza. Okay, that's it for this half. Do join us in part two when we'll be answering a bumper crop of listeners' questions. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome back. Well, the first question is from Simon in Northumberland, uh, and he writes, thanks again for your commitment to this podcast. I love the end of year book review too. And his question is, the Ukrainian armed forces had some of their biggest territorial gains in the Kharkiv area. This was a spectacular and rapid liberation of occupied land that stopped around the edge of the Luhansk Oblast. I know that Zelensky has recently highlighted the importance of Korea, and this is understandable politically and strategically. However, is there still value in seeking territorial advances in Luhansk to provide tangible gains on the battlefield? Or are there now few weak spots in Russian fixed positions that Ukraine could take advantage of to demonstrate to its Western backers that they can move forward and push the Russians back? Patrick, what do you think? I think from the Zelensky interview we were talking about at the top, it's unlikely that we're going to see anything more than determined holding operations along all that front for you know, pretty obvious reasons, really clearly. Zelensky is concerned about public opinion um, in terms of you know, population, the quality of the people who are being killed. They've already sustained, Ukraine has already sustained some pretty painful 
blows. We don't know the precise figures, but we know that they're high. They're not as high as the Russians, but it's still a lot for Ukrainian society to absorb this this level of casualties. Um, so I think that's clearly something very much at the forefront of his mind. He's got to maintain public support for the war. And another failed offensive it is really going to be a lot for Ukraine to swallow. So I think that's really not on the agenda. What do you think, Saul? Do you think there's anything to be gained from any kind of major kind of maneuver battle on those fronts? No, not on those fronts. I mean, the most likely, as we've suggested in recent weeks, if there's going to be any possibility for gains, uh, will be in the south, particularly in this beachhead, bridgehead over the Dnipro River, which the Russians have been attacking recently uh, and losing a lot of troops in so doing. So that beachhead is relatively secure and will provide opportunities in the future. And you can see how that marries in with a strategy to degrade the kit and the uh, troops that are coming into Crimea more generally in that part of southern Ukraine. So I, I very much think that's the area of interest. You know, it ties in with the Zelensky interview, Patrick, and it also allows the Ukrainians to save as many lives as possible while also delivering real pain to the Russians. So that seems to make complete sense to me. I mentioned last week that actually the idea of just holding on and letting the pain for Russia in an economic sense uh, play through increased loss of life as the Kremlin feels much more pressure to actually show some kind of gain on the battlefield. And he doesn't mind how many lives it loses in the process. Sooner or later, that is going to backfire. So we thought it was a the time game was always going to go against Ukraine. I'm not so sure now. I've got a couple of questions here from Alex and Mark, both, I think, from Australia. Yeah. But I won't, I haven't had answers to your specific question, Alex, about the counter-missile capabilities of Russia at Ukraine, Mark asks, can't they raise more foreign troops for people from uh, underdeveloped countries who might be attracted by the relatively good paying conditions in the Ukrainian army? Again, I haven't really got an answer to that. But what I'm really getting at is that both of you say thanks for the podcast, but they both say I'm loving the start of the 1944 series too. I just want to Flag up to everyone. This is the um, pod that goes out Wednesday when we're going through 1944, key events, personalities, dramas, controversies, etc., which we're both thoroughly enjoying doing. So, sorry for not specifically answering your question, guys, but thanks very much for saying you're enjoying it because, you know, we were a bit nervous about how it was going to go down. It's great to hear that people appear uh, to like it. So, that's a relief. Yeah, I do have a response to Alex's question about the uh, anti-missile capability disparity in the, in the sense that he asked how come Ukraine can regularly shoot down Russia's advanced hypersonic missiles like Caliber while Russia is unable to counter the storm shadow, which travels much more slowly. And the answer is difference in technology, both in terms of the offensive weapon, the missile is being fired, these vaunted Kinzals, which were apparently impossible to knock down. Well, enormous numbers of them, uh, scores have already been shot down. Why? Because Patriot uh, and other Western anti-missile defenses are very effective. Uh, and on the other hand, these offensive weapons aren't as good. Now, the Russians claim to have had this vaunted S-400 uh, anti-air system, and that probably isn't as good as they've claimed. And the Ukrainians have been taking out quite a number of them, particularly in Crimea. So I think it's a combination of all those factors. And and one other point to make, uh, someone's asked the question, why aren't more missile strikes being direct, precision missile strikes being directed on Russian territory itself? 
uh, because we know that there's been a lot of attacks on Belgorod recently. Both Patrick and I think probably not a good idea to do this tit-for-tat attacks on civilians, but it's been happening nonetheless. But with Ukrainian kit, the reason there haven't been precision strikes by storms, shadows and scalps into Russia is because NATO, as we've mentioned many times before, uh, or NATO countries have said they can't be used outside Ukraine's territory. And we've got a one here from Julie in Cork in Ireland. Um, and Julie says, although I have to admit, I have over the past few months been feeling utterly depressed by the status and the discussions at times, so that's no reflection on you. Uh, her question relates to the argument of continuing to support Ukraine and whether Joe Biden and Zelensky should be making a different argument. Now, Julie is saying that instead of just talking about protecting Europe, NATO, etc., there's a stronger argument, which is that if Putin wins, this will strengthen his allies in China, which you know should uh, really get the US's attention, and also Iran and North Korea, all of whom are basically on the dark side from the American perspective and indeed from our perspective. And also, she says, you know, by not taking this line, the US is in danger of forfeiting their role as an international leader. Julie's feeling is that the current arguments are simply not working and they need really to change these points to be made strongly and clearly. And that until now, Joe Biden has not made a proper argument to the American people about the importance of winning this war, and he needs to do so. Well, she's asking for our thoughts about it. My immediate thought is that, unfortunately, as you move into the election season, Ukraine is a bit of a hot potato. It's not necessarily going to be a vote win if you're uh, making this a, one of the main planks in your re-election platform. But that's the way, unfortunately, that's the way democracies work, isn't it? And uh, inevitably, if you're not actually in the firing line, the sense of urgency about Ukraine is going to wane. And we see that in, in Europe and we certainly see it in America. So I don't know what you do about it. I completely agree, Julie, that this, this argument is a very sound one and ought to be made very forcefully. But the calculation will be very much on the you know, electoral benefits of doing that in the US. And I don't see that they're necessarily from that narrow perspective. Very strong, so I wouldn't hold your breath. I was reading about the waning sense of urgency in Europe. And uh, someone made a very good analogy. They said it's uh, like someone who's uh, a smoker who's just been given a, a cancer scare. And this is what happened back in 2022 when we were all, we were all really saw the threat, you know, clearly and unambiguously that was coming from Putin's Russia. And that sort of galvanizes people for a moment. So like this smoker, uh, you give up the fags for a while. And then as your uh, sense of danger diminishes, uh, you sort of actually get back in bad old ways. I fear there is a danger of that in, in Europe where you see this increasingly sort of multi-layered response to what's going on there with you know one end of the spectrum. You've got us, the Germans, and the uh, Baltic countries, and the other end of the spectrum you've got, uh, who are really doing, still doing a hell of a lot to help Ukraine. And the other end of the spectrum, you've got countries like Hungary and uh, Serbia's not actually in the EU, but uh, they're attitude towards Russia is pretty much supportive. And in the case of Hungary, they're doing everything they can to undermine uh, European solidarity towards Ukraine and making the case for Russia. I think Julie needs a job at the US State Department because whether or not the support for Ukraine is a vote winner in a year of an election, and I agree with you, Patrick, that is an important consideration 
Biden is committed to getting more cash for the Ukrainians because actually he does see the big picture. And I totally agree with Julia that they're not making the argument as effectively as they can do. It's not about European security per se. It's about sending a signal to China and everyone else that actually this sort of aggression, and remember, China is very much seeing what happens with this as to whether or not it goes ahead with its stated intention to invade Taiwan at some point. And this is an area that Americans, as Julie hints at, really do care much more about. Every time I talk to someone in the American military at the moment, they're saying, well, Europe's one thing, but we're much more concerned with China. Well, if you can make the argument forcefully that China is going to be emboldened by any success that Putin has in Ukraine, I think that makes it much easier for the American public, uh, Republicans in particular, to accept that these things are all interlinked as indeed the Second World War, when stuff was going on in the Pacific, it affected what was happening in Europe. You need to see it in the round. And if the American public can do that, they will be much more amenable, I suspect, to supporting uh, Ukraine. And let's face it, we're not losing American troops on the ground, which is what made Iraq and Afghanistan so unpopular ultimately. This is just a question of making it possible for the Ukrainians to fight the Russians with American kit and American money. And that, to me, seems to be a very logical foreign policy decision that most Americans should support. Yeah, uh, this is clearly an issue that uh, that's concerning a lot of our listeners. As we, Rob P from Sydney makes the same point about uh, you know, his frustration at the way that uh, people aren't seeing the big picture in this way, and that uh, any sign of weakness is, is only going to encourage uh, aggression from players like not just China but also Iran, etc. Couple here actually, one from Cam Keen in Auckland, New Zealand. A lot of Southern Hemisphere this is writing it this week. And Joseph P. Miller, they're both really asking what's going on with, first of all, with uh, the British contribution to the Ukrainian capability in the Black Sea. Cam is wondering about what happened to the two minesweepers that the UK donated to Ukraine. I'm really just asking about the general situation in the Black Sea at the moment. Um, Joseph Miller is asking whether since the US has just decommissioned several literal class ships, these I, I imagine are kind of, you know, from their names, sort of you know, coastal small scale ships. He's asking, uh, are they going to be transferred to other countries as foreign military sales, or is there any chance they might go to Ukraine? So what do you reconcile? Is there more we could be doing to increase their capability? I mean, I've made this point before about how this ever-expanding navies, there's a lot of spare capacity there. Could some of that be directed to help Ukraine in what we now agree is a sort of new phase of the war that's likely to be focused on on Black Sea and Crimea? Yeah, well, even if uh, the US did uh, devote some ships, these these literal class ships to uh, Ukraine, how can you get them there? I mean, we've had the issue with the minesweepers, of course, uh, the British minesweepers. They can't get through the Straits of Constantinople because Turkey has a tradition of closing the Straits in wartime. And it works for both sides, by the way, because, I mean, people are getting outraged by this and saying, well, you know, Turkey is part of NATO. Why isn't it letting these ships through? Because there is a convention that basically means that the Straits are closed to all warships of any nation. So Russia is facing the same problem. And Russia actually is in a more difficult position because, as you've already said, Patrick, Ukraine has degraded about a fifth of the Black Sea fleet, maybe even a higher proportion than that. And there's no way uh, that 
Russia can do anything about replacing those ships. It's got other ships, of course, on its northern coast, but it can't get them all the way around there, but like it tried to do in the 1905 war with Japan, where it sailed the fleet all the way around, halfway around the world, which was then promptly destroyed at the Battle of Tsushima. But there's no possibility that Russia can do that in the Black Sea because it can't get its ships through the Straits of Constantinople. So I would say this is affecting the Russians more than it is the Ukrainians, even though we've been hearing a lot about these minesweepers. What the Ukrainians are doing very well is showing that actually surface ships are very vulnerable to attack now, particularly from drones, sea drones and air drones, and of course, also missiles. And a lot of uh, navies, Patrick, will be looking at this and thinking, okay, we need to understand the lessons this is going to pose in the future. It helps, of course, if you've got very effective air cover, and the Americans will still continue to build these huge aircraft carriers because it can project so much power from support ships, but also from air cover that actually can keep its enemies and enemy missiles at bay. Okay, moving on to Gaza. We've had quite a few responses in relation to Patrick's response last week to the question, is, which was, why weren't we condemning uh, Israel's actions in Gaza more? And why didn't we see it as sort of similar to the support for Ukraine? Well, uh, Patrick answered that, I thought, very eloquently last week. Uh, and a lot of people have supported Patrick's response. One from Norma just wanted to say Patrick's response uh, was eminently thoughtful and sensible. Patrick, I dare say we are of a similar vintage. We have a similar attitude towards the right of Israel to exist and are similarly distraught at Israel's recent actions against civilians in Gaza. An eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. And it seems the whole story of the Middle East since the beginning of the 20th century is one of murder and vengeance. It's going to take some novel out-of-the-box thinking to solve this impasse because clearly the old reactionary responses aren't working. Thanks for a great podcast. You do an awesome job of keeping us current with political events. Well, not everyone has been so complimentary. We've also had one from Bruce who says, I've grown weary of academics and journalists incessantly describing the horrors of war, such as in Gaza. Then like Mr. Butcher, they offer as a solution talking and marginalizing the extremists. Mr. Butcher, of course, is Tim Butcher, who Patrick interviewed on our Monday bonus episode. Brilliant interview. If you haven't heard it, please listen to it. It clearly didn't go uh, down well with Bruce. So I'll give Patrick a chance to respond in a second. But he goes on to say, that is Butcher's solution, Tim Butcher's solution. It's an intellectually lazy solution when, when dealing with a population where reportedly 75% support Hamas's invasion of Israel. Few analysts or pundits are willing to discuss the fundamental problem. How does a civilized country like Israel deal with an opponent whose political, educational, cultural, and religious institutions are sworn to its destruction? Patrick, what's your feeling? Well, um, he does actually say, uh, conclude, Bruce, who hails from California, he says, with whom should Israel talk to end hostilities? However reasonable sounding, the proposition, i.e. Tim's proposition for moderates to come forward, is so favoric, which I think means, um, my translation from the American would be kind of juvenile, sort of schoolboy, schoolgirlish, kind of O-level reaction to a complicated situation. Well, my response to that is I think um, you could say the same about Nelson Mandela, couldn't you? I mean, he, he might have been seen as um, very naive and your word sophomoric uh, if you're looking at him from a particularly cold and practical perspective. Now, think about it. Mandela had the best years of his life taken away from him by white South Africans. He had a great deal to feel bitter about, as did the millions of black South Africans who'd suffered under apartheid. But 
led by Mandela, led by his example. There was no civil war in South Africa. And, you know, much of that uh, credit uh, goes to the superhuman restraint, you might call it sainthood, that he demonstrated, and which, as I say, served as an example for his people. Now, you know, that may be naive, but there it is. It's a historical precedent. And it's surely better, to my mind, to take that as a template than the real politic that's consistently been followed you know, relentlessly in the Israel-Palestine conflict, which you must agree, Bruce, has led us to a very bad place. Okay, we've got one here from Robert John Edwards in Vancouver, Canada. I was impressed and pleased by your response, Patrick, to the letter taking issue with the objectivity of the podcast treatment of the Ukraine and Gaza conflicts. To have cited the Holocaust and historical anti-Semitism as key to the Zionist outlook of, of our generation in the UK and North America in the way you did was, I thought, uncommonly honest and forthright. Do you think it's fair to say that we, I'm a 65-year-old Canadian, gave the Israeli point of view the benefit of the doubt for most of our lives? I know that I did. While I haven't done the necessary research to justify more than a sort of hypothesis, I wonder whether it was the influence of the loose publications and their equivalent in the 60s and 70s during my formative years that was responsible. At least until 1973, Golda Meir and Moshe Dayan were to me characters at once heroic and avuncular. He's sort of portraying Goldemir as a kind of Jewish grandmother. What about you? Has he got a point there, Patrick? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the, the uh, loose publications that he refers to uh, are, of course, the new magazines founded by Henry Luce, who's a brilliant figure of 20th century America media. He founded uh, Time Life, as well as... Um, Fortune and Sports Illustrated, Time, of course, being you know, where everyone went to for their weekly news digest and life, brilliant photographic coverage of you know all the great events of the world. Now, you know, Luce was not, wasn't Jewish himself, he's Presbyterian, in fact, but he, he did help to establish this, this view of, of Israel as being a nation of sort of heroic pioneers, which, you know, is one way of looking at it, and he, he did promote this sort of David and, and Goliath image. He romanticized the foundation story of Israel. You know, those two figures you know, you mentioned, Golda Meir and Moshe Dayan, you know, I was brought up with looking on them as, as heroic figures, which, which they were in their way. Moshe with his, uh, his very dashing eye patch, remember that? So, yeah, it, it, it was all true. And, you know, Israel and its travails and huge kind of dangers it faced, all the rest of it, was very much reported in a in a sympathetic way. Think back to the nineteen seventy two Summer Olympics in Munich, the killing of the of the Israeli athletes and the taking hostages, etc. But that was turned into a parable of how Israel and the Jewish people would uh, strike back when they were attacked, and the world rightly applauded. And Saul, you know this very well, didn't you, with your book on Operation Thunderbolt and the freeing of the hostages and the Tebe raid. So this created a powerful sense of well-being towards Israel, which is still there. But over the years, it's 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 being eroded. And I think you know, for people of, of our generation, Robert, it is painful, you know, uncomfortable for people of our generation, Robert, uh, to feel that that's being eroded, and for us having to re-examine our feelings towards Israel. And for a younger generation, of course, it's an entirely different matter, and that's something that Israel is going to have to very much uh, bear in mind, I think. 
Okay, that's all we have time for. Do keep questions coming in to podbattleground at gmail.com and do join us next Wednesday for our latest edition of Battleground 44 when we'll be looking at the air battle of Berlin and also, of course, on Friday when we'll be coming back to Ukraine and Gaza and answering listeners' questions. Goodbye. Goodbye.